Good morning again. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 2. We'll get there in time. Galatians chapter 2. And this is the second week in a series, a a culture series, on uh, the church and culture. Last week we started, and we started around this idea what happens when the church, which used to shape a culture, be a primary culture shaper, what happens when it's relegated from the center of sort of the cultural seat to the periphery, when it's moved from the heart of how a culture thinks to the margin? What happens? I suggest we're sort of in this period of time where um, at least in the United States, this is a local series, this is on the culture that we all share in, but here in the United States, uh, the people at the levers of, and the people making decisions are not holding their breath, wondering what the church thinks. They're not overly nervous about how the church is going to respond. They know us pretty well, and... We're pretty well managed uh, today in culture. And our study in Scripture last week, uh, we examined the theme of exile. <clears throat> because I think it's helpful for us to think a little bit about, um, to look at scriptural exile and see some similarities of a people who were felt as though in some ways they were strangers to a culture as a people who were not that influential among the people that they lived. And the people who had to turn to God and back into themselves for a sense of home. I think that's helpful for us. And in fact, when I think of uh, the church in America as something that might be migrating into a sort of spiritual exile, I, there's a lot of hope that I have. I think uh, there is there's a great deal of clarity that comes when you no longer think that the decisions are the decisions of the home team. You, um, you can see things for what they are. Just as a brief aside, you know, growing up, you have the rating system for movies, G, PG, PG-13. Do you remember the first PG-13 movie? It was, I believe it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I believe they had to make that PG. That's when they invented that rating. Um, now I watch it, I go, man, that's R. He pulls the heart out of someone's chest. What do you call that? I, I think, I look back and go, there was a time when we thought, Oh, this rating system's here to help us. It's, it's our people making these decisions for us, on our behalf. Those days are gone now, you know? I mean, the untrustworthiness of that to match the Christian mind um, actually gives me clarity now. Now, I don't even rely on it. I now know these are not my people. And 
um, there's some helpfulness in that. Well, so throughout this past week, as uh, I was getting feedback, a friend said to me, hey, I, I like this idea of exile, but I have to tell you, I don't really feel that different. Or would you describe to me how I as an exile should begin to feel different from the world around me? And I think that's what we're going to try to do today, is just to begin to think about what's the process by which we start to feel different from the prevailing culture. And the, the setting of this sermon this morning is going to be in the topic of unity. About four or five weeks ago, I was asked to preach, uh, actually, a, a pastor friend of mine at Solid Rock Baptist Church. It's historically uh, African-American fellowship. He said, hey, let's worship together. So the Wilmington campus of our church and I, we went down. We had a great time together, a real blessing. And he said, hey, would you preach on unity? And uh, um, what I'm going to share with you is essentially the same message. Um, maybe with an emphasis in a slightly different area. But I wrote, this, I wrote this message thinking of that service and of this service. So um, with that said, let's go ahead and talk about unity for a second. I think if you're like me, you may often wonder... Um, what went wrong in the church that unity would be so elusive? And if you're at all like me, you may find yourself wishing we could just go back to the old days, to the early church, when everything was fine. The problem with that thought is things have never been just fine in the church. And the book of Acts tells us that. We aren't six chapters into the book of Acts when we find full-blown ethnic and racial divide inside the fellowship. Acts chapter 6, there's serious racial discord in the church. So, the whole imprint of the history of God's people is one in which unity has been elusive. Unity of all kinds has been elusive. And we find, actually, that the few times where the church takes a real aggressive bend towards godly unity are the times where God himself acts in a very clear way. So one example might be Acts chapter 2, when God sends the Holy Spirit on the apostles and they begin to preach the gospel in many languages. And people from all around the world, Jews from all around the world who had come to Jerusalem, hear the truth of Jesus spoken in their, their tongue and they are brought to repentance and confession. And on that day, 3,000 people become part of the body of Christ. Now, that's a great unifying moment. I mean, Pentecost was a wildly diverse holiday in Jerusalem. And that's the day that the Lord struck and brought many people into his house. But that was God acting directly and overtly. Later on in Acts chapter 10, the question of can a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, can someone who is not a Jew enjoy the grace of Jesus Christ? That subject finally surfaces in Acts, and the Lord is determined to sort of break that barrier, break that dividing wall down. And so he grabs this God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius, and he says, hey, the Lord has looked down upon He acts directly to tell him, the Lord has seen your good deeds. 
send for a man named Peter. And so Cornelius sends several people to go get Peter in another town. Meanwhile, Peter is having a nap and has this vision through which the Lord works in him to say, hey, what don't call unclean that which I have called clean. He wakes up, the doorbell rings. It's these people from Cornelius. Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius. The Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius' household. And Peter says, who, who can withhold baptism from this family? Whom God has so clearly approved. And they take this moment, they go back to Jerusalem, they share what they have discovered, and the church says, I guess the Lord is working in the Gentile world also. Praise be to God. Okay, that was a great unifying moment, but God did it. And I'm not saying that God's not active in the silence, but it's in the silent moments when we feel like we're in control, that unity seems much more elusive. And this is one of them here in Galatians 2. Now, Paul's writing a letter to this church in Galatia, these churches in Galatia, but his interest or the subject of his story is this town called Antioch. So he's relaying to them an account of a church in Antioch. And Antioch was the first church that we know of where the gospel really blossomed among the Gentile community, among the non-Jewish community. And leading up to this, Paul gives us a little bit of background. Earlier in chapter 2, he says, hey, I felt like I was an apostle called to the Gentiles, but not wanting to run my race in vain, I went to Jerusalem I went before the apostles like Peter, James, and John, those reputed to be pillars of the faith, and I shared with them my heart and my calling. And Peter himself said, this is chapter 2, Peter himself said that he was specifically called to the circumcised with the gospel, but he acknowledged I was an apostle to the Gentiles, and he extended the right hand of fellowship with me, and I went on my merry way. Okay, that's the preface to this moment. Let me go ahead and read verse 11 through 14. Oh, by the way, Peter's name in Aramaic is Cephas. So you're going to see Cephas, it's the same guy. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, there's a big moment here. And in this moment, just to give you a little bit, in case you're trying to have a hard time holding on to what's going on, Peter comes up to Antioch, a church largely populated by Gentiles. And as long as it's just Peter and the church at Antioch, he's happy. He's eating with them. He's hanging out with them. He's hugging them. He's in their house. He's touching them. There's full fellowship, no barrier. But then over some period of time, some other Jewish Christians from Jerusalem 
come up to Antioch to join him. And they see what he's doing and they say something like, what are you doing? They're Gentiles. Like, Peter, you can't do this. They are not clean. And Peter folds to the peer pressure. And he distances himself from the Gentile community of Christ that he was formerly close to. And this is what this is what Paul opposes. Now I've wondered how this could happen in my mind. I've wondered, you know, in order to try to understand, I think somebody like Peter, my first girl is try to respect Peter as a person like myself, and say, how could this happen for a person like me? How can I have the theology worked out in my mind ahead of time? Peter experienced the miracle with Cornelius. He and no one else really. I mean, he had a really important imprint where God said, let the Gentiles in. Okay? So he has this theological moment in his life that clears everything up for him. And then he does this thing. And I've wondered, I've wondered in my own mind if if it went something like this. You know, Peter's, Peter shepherds a flock in Jerusalem. They're largely, if not overwhelmingly, if not entirely, Jewish Christians. Sunday after Sunday, he ministers with Jewish Christians, where themes like cleanliness, you know, are adaptable. Everybody understands cleanliness laws. Everybody understands the Torah. Everybody understands. And so he can sort of live surrounded with his Jewishness as an important part of his Christianity. It's a really valuable, meaningful part of his day-to-day ministry there. And he can have in his mind this notion that the Gentiles are also fully admitted into the kingdom, but it's, it's a thought. It probably, probably for Peter, doesn't matter day in and day out because he's not really with those people. He's with his people. And so it can probably be something that's just silently understood in his mind, but I imagine he would think, I probably don't really need to preach about this. The whole church is Jewish. Why rock the boat? Something in me has to wonder if it was something that was just quietly held by him or more quietly than it should have been because it does not last. His convictions do not survive this experience in Antioch where a little bit of peer pressure and he folds. Well, Paul responds, and Paul doesn't respond quietly. Paul doesn't pull him aside and sort of whisper like, hey, man, that wasn't cool. Like, you, you've heard a couple feelings here. He, Paul doesn't do that. He says he opposes him to his face. And he doesn't say, clearly here, Peter, you're misled. Or clearly here, Peter, you've, you're confused. He says, this hypocrisy cannot stand. He calls it hypocrisy. You know what makes it hypocrisy? I think it's this. I think it's that Peter's behavior, that he is the behavior he's exhibiting, rejects the very gospel on which he depends. I'm going to say it again. I think what makes it hypocrisy is that the, the behavior that Peter exhibits towards someone else 
rejects the exact gospel on which his life depends. What I mean by that is, does Peter claim that, that his cleanliness was something that commended him to the Lord? No. Does Peter claim in any way that he did something to deserve his salvation? No. Does Peter claim that it's through merit that he warrants the approval of God? No. Peter knows, Peter knows clearly in his mind, the denier of Christ himself knows there's nothing in his life that effectually commends himself to the Holy Father except for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And yet somehow those people are not clean. He's withholding the merit of the gospel from them, the very thing which he needs. In fact, Paul follows it up. Look at verse 15 and 16. This is exactly what Paul calls out. He says, and he's going to speak in kind of rhetorically at first. And Paul's a Jew also. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not, quote unquote, Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He's saying, Peter, you are withholding the gospel from them. The very gospel you need, you're withholding from them on a basis that you yourself won't claim. You're not claiming to be clean before the Lord. Why in the world would you separate from them as though they're not clean? In other words, the sole sufficiency of Jesus Christ makes the differences among the body irrelevant. Because there's nothing that I have that you need to get to Jesus. And there's nothing that you have that I need to get to Jesus. You do not have to come my way in order to come God's way. There's nothing. Our faith in Christ is the only thing. Jesus alone has done everything that is required for anyone to come to know the Lord and to stand right before the Lord. Which means I am prohibited from putting anything in front of you anything at all except for Christ. Which is why Paul eventually preaches in this letter, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Because we are universally equal before the Lord. We are all in dire need. Because the only thing that we have in common that matters, the only relevant thing that you and I share is our sinfulness before a holy God. And in that we have Jesus Our differences are not relevant. Now, what I just said, this is the center of the gospel. This is just the bullseye of our hope in Christ. And on this, there should be agreement, right? Not only agreement here, but agreement over time in the church and across the spectrum. Messages like this have been preached. I'm not saying anything at all unique or new. There's nothing here. It's all good and rich but it has been said a thousand times. Which makes me wonder, why then is unity in the church of God so elusive? 
it makes me wonder all the more. Why then is it so difficult? Why then are our differences so powerfully at play when the only thing that we have in common with one another, which is Jesus Christ, is the only thing that matters? Why is unity so elusive? Just think, for a people among whom the most important thing that has ever happened in your life, the most meaningful part of your life is the one thing that you have in common with every other Christian in this room. It's not as though we have a tertiary sort of peripheral thing in common. What we have in common is the most profound thing that's ever happened for us. And yet, unity is elusive. And not just in one way. Unity inside of a church, unity between churches, unity among the denominations, unity among the peoples of the world. Like It's elusive at every level. Well, there may be many reasons. I'm sure there's more than two, but I only have two today. So you, maybe we get off easy. Here's my two reasons. Two reasons why unity among believers is elusive. First, while Christians look to Jesus for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins, we generally trust the way we view the world. Okay, let me, let me say this a little differently. While you and I, I'm assuming, by the way, that you're in Christ, while you and I are thankful that Christ forgave us of our sins, of the stuff we did wrong, of all the bad stuff we did, we are not nearly as suspicious about how we think about the world. We generally come into the kingdom going, I'm glad, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of my sins. But we don't have this sinister suspicion that our minds are not yet made in the image. They're not yet fully conformed to Christ. We're like, glad he forgave us, and we're, but we're fine. I, I don't mean like I don't do, I recognize I do wrong things, but I don't recognize so much that it's the way I think that gives birth to these wrong things. Okay, so while I have been made like Christ as far as forgiven of my sins, my mind is not like Christ. We read the Bible and we see, oh, Jesus is like us, and we make the the big error to think that we're like Jesus. We're not yet. We're slowly, over the course of our life, being conformed to the mind of Jesus, which means that in this very room right now, there's a person here who's forgiven of their sins, who disagrees wildly with me on many things and may even wonder, how is it possible that this guy's a Christian? Because his mind's messed up. (laughs) And my mind's messed up. Right? We sit on all the corners of the kingdom of God. We're like a thousand miles away from the sinner, wondering why the person on the opposite side of the circle, how is it possible he's in the kingdom of God, not realizing that we're equidistant, that we're slowly all crawling up the mountain towards the Lord, carefully over our lives, having our minds changed. And all of that's happening here. Peter, 
he'd come to the conclusion that the Gentiles are in, but I don't think he ever really allowed that affect the way he thinks about things. You know, Peter, as he's washing his hands and his Jewish rituals, getting ready, right, as he's going to the temple, right, daily they met in the temple courts. As, as he's living about his helpful Jewishness, as he's understanding the Lord, I don't know. I, I think, if he's anything at all like us, that he did not assume that all of that needed to be reviewed and rethought through and gently carried. I think he just thought, this, I'm thankful that Jesus forgave me and I'm about right. And it crashes into something different. And when that happens, it's exposed for all of its wrong. I'll give you an example. About a year ago, I was driving along in the car. And by the way, this example is just dangerous enough. So give me some grace. Driving along in the car, I'm listening to the radio, and they're talking about this, the opioid epidemic. And a lady calls in from Doylestown, which if you know Doylestown, it's highbrow. It's kind of mainline-ish, yuppie. She calls in from Doylestown, and she says, my son is addicted to opioids, opioids, and I don't think we should use the phrase druggy to describe him. Now, when I heard this, actually what ended up, it ignited immediately in my gut a fire, almost an indignation. And it was... I mean, I'm just telling you. By the way, everything I'm saying from this point on is I'm not saying it's all right. I'm just telling you what happened. Okay? What I immediately felt is that is such a racist comment. That as long as this problem was in Philly, they're druggies, but now it's in Doylestown and they're not. It fired me up. I grew up with this word druggie. As long as, as, long as it's that zip code... We can say a different word. But the moment it's my zip code, we got to change the language. Is, is this why it's now an opioid crisis, by the way? You don't feel that? You should. And if you don't feel it, it's because you, our minds are not like the Lord yet. So anyway, I'm all hot and bothered in my car, all fired up and angry. While this conversation continues to go on, and the Lord hits me. Because in my mind, this is what I'm saying. He is a druggie. And the Lord it didn't speak, okay? It was just one of those times where you just feel your spirit wrapped up with, how is it possible that you can have so little charity in the truth, John? Neither of them are druggies. Like, will you please refer to the people I've made with words of dignity? Could you for a moment have a heartbreak over all of that's sinful and not just some of what's sinful? It, now this is a moment, right? This is a moment in my life, and you'll have them too. We have them. Where I realize he's forgiven me from, from my sins, but man, I'm so far from the top of this mountain. Like, I'm not yet like him. I can hold on to part of the truth, but the moment I try to hold on to all of it, it starts to, because my mind and my spirit don't have the capacity yet for Christ, all of Christ. This is one reason why unity is so elusive, because this room is full of this. And so, just know that. All right, here's the second reason why unity is elusive in the church that I think. 
Second of many, but all I have time for. While Christians look to Jesus for salvation, and while we recognize that he has forgiven us of our sins, there remain nonetheless things about you from your upbringing that you were taught to embrace as good, as particularly good, as especially good, as quintessentially meaningful. I'm going to call these things cultural virtues. Okay? They're most likely good things. Okay? On any given day, a cultural virtue is something that almost everybody would say is good. Community. Good. Solidarity. Fine. There's a whole host of them. Okay? It's good. But in your particular case, and we all have them, in the way that you were particularly raised, there's something that is a little bit super elevated. It's elevated above and beyond what other people groups might value it at. But for your people group, and I don't mean this as stop thinking just race, just think of how you were boiled, neighborhood, school, all all of what made you who you are, you've come to value this thing as especially good. And among your people, it helps. Because among your people, when you sort of live and judge with your people, that's how you live and judge one another, by, by each other. When you look out to communities that don't value this, it's easy to get judgmental. In other words, this cultural virtue gets elevated above the first things of God and ends up becoming a vice in the way you think. So, here in the Scriptures, Peter. No doubt Peter was raised to be clean. Every good Jewish child was raised in the midst of cleanliness. Wash your hands, be careful. You dress this way, you eat this way, you wash your hands this way, you separate from those people. In fact, in Acts 10, when he had this vision where he was told to eat all sorts of creatures, he pleads to the Lord in the vision, Lord, all my life, never once have I done this thing. He understood cleanliness. He's saturated with the notion of cleanliness. It's a cultural virtue to him and his people. Clean, set apart, consecrated for the Lord. And then he comes among Gentiles who all of his life he's been told not clean. And it pushes the gospel out. That cultural virtue, which, by the way, is probably just fine. The Lord himself uses cleanliness laws, right? God himself gave those laws. They're in the right measure, in the right way. They're perfectly fine and they do no harm. But super elevated above the first things of God, and they become the very weapon by which you judge the rest of the world. I'll give you one of mine, the one that I know this year. It's the one I'm currently working with. My cultural virtue is productivity. Good people are productive. Didn't you know that? Probably most of you do because we share it. Good people work hard which means good people don't need help. Good people don't need, productive people don't need to borrow stuff. In fact, they much prefer to be in the position of lender. Because when you lend, 
it affirms that you have been productive because you have what they need. But you prefer not to lend it to somebody who needs it because if they need it, they're not productive. Like, I would prefer to help people who don't need help. Because if they need help, they've done something wrong. Now, I'm, I'm not describing to you exactly as I am now. I am describing to you things I've seen about myself, which is my high view of productivity, which sort of came from my, not just my family, but my sense of upbringing. Like, you, you work hard, and if it isn't working right, you work harder, and you fix it. That's what the American dream does. It rises above, right? Red, white, and blue, Uncle Sam, all that stuff. That's my cultural virtue. So when I look out at someone who doesn't work so hard as me, when I, they don't work as hard as me, I say they don't work so hard or hard enough. Or they're getting what they deserve. Even though this is what Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek. And I can't erase those lines from Scripture. And Jesus also says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yeah, but my kind of people don't go to the Lord confessionally because we don't need help. Do you see how a cultural virtue, when super elevated, can become so it's just a gangrene in the flourishing of your faith. In fact, I have had to create a little mantra for myself. Sounds funny. I actually do this. Sometimes driving along or wherever it is, I say to myself, blessed are the productive is not a beatitude. I say that to myself. I, almost like, a, like you're going into a big boardroom meeting. Blessed are the productive is not a beatitude. Because it, I have needed, I've needed to mine myself and eradicate it. Because it, it, it affects the way I view people. It affects the way I view the world. And you have these things also. And it's not that you're not Christian. It's that you're not really like Jesus yet. None of us are. We have been forgiven. And we have been loved. And we've received the Holy Spirit. But we're not yet like him. And there's things about the way you think that get in the way of the way you see others. And for this reason, unity in the body of Christ remains elusive. By the way, it's true in the church too, right? Some churches have these cult, some, see, I just said it as though we don't. Churches, every church has a cultural value a cultural virtue. Some it's easier for us to see. There, I finally said it right. Like, oh, good Christians dress this way. Or oh, good Christians read this version of the Bible. Okay, we see those and we go, ha, hypocrites. Every church has them. And for this reason, unity within the body of Christ remains elusive. Okay, we are not becoming more like Jesus if we are not becoming more and more estranged from the culture that made us. Here's the bottom line. We are not becoming more like Christ if we are not becoming more and more continually estranged from the world around us. It isn't happening. 
as I begin to conform my life to the image and thoughts of Jesus Christ, I will begin to distinguish differences in myself from who I formerly was and from the people who made me, from the forces that influenced me and raised me. I will begin to see things that I did not see about them and about how I came to be as I become more like the Lord. That, it's got to happen. Two things have to happen. If you... If the Holy Spirit's in you, carving you out, two things have to happen. We, first of all, we must progressively begin to unify. If the Holy Spirit's present, we should see forces of unification at work. That's the first thing. The second thing. We must feel progressively estranged from the world in which we came. the shows you watch, the nature of your leisure, the words that come out of your mouth, right? It's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. If the heart's different, the mouth is different. The things you look, you cast your eye upon, the things you laugh at, the way you view work, productivity, Rest, others, all must progressively conform to the image of Christ. And in doing that, you will feel estranged from the places from which you came. In other words, good Christians among any people will one day feel like exiles. One day, if we had a long enough life we would progressively estrange ourselves in such a way that you and I would have everything in common, everything in common with one another. We would be like our own people group among a different people. I'll close with this passage. It's on the screen. It's just one passage. It's 1 Peter 1.1. And I like it because of... where I feel like it tells me Peter's come from, right? Peter in Galatians, which is one of the, I think the earliest letter in the New Testament is Galatians. In that early letter, what you're seeing is Peter still very Jewish. Peter caught in sort of the, the, the nature of the gospel as it seems to sound in Jerusalem. It's very home field. And here, the first Peter is one of the last letters we have of the New Testament. And here, what do we see Peter writing? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, to the elect exiles. He's writing now to almost entirely Gentile churches, mind you, Galatia being one of them. He's writing letters now to churches that are comprised almost entirely of Gentiles, referring to them and himself almost by inclusion as exiles. As now we are our own people among a great people. It's my hope that that would be the way our heart would grow together as we necessarily unify. Let me pray.